I'm extra enthusiastic because I feel like the 1115 service is the sleeping crowd. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Labeling you. But anyways, my name's Shannon. I'm a member of the community here. Uh, the last time I spoke at St. Peter's was a couple Advents ago, so it's nice to be back speaking again at Advent time, which is one of my favorite times of year. We live in a time where there's promises made all around us, and you only have to think of the advertisements that we see or what fills our Instagram or Facebook feeds to see this. Try this diet and you'll lose those extra pounds. It's a promise. This program changed my life and health forever. Or promises that a product or a system, it's going to change the way we look or make us smarter or more efficient or better time managers. There's promises made around us all the time, every day. Now, I know that last week, Rob, he talked about Elf, had an Elf reference. He kind of stole it. He doesn't like Elf. I like Elf, and I have an Elf reference as well. I leave that up to you to decide uh, what you think about each of us, but that I like it, I mean. But it makes me think of a scene in Elf where Buddy, he stumbled, the main character, Buddy and Elf, he stumbles upon a cafe. And the promise given by this cafe is that it is the world's best cup of coffee. And Buddy believes it. And when he takes his love interest, Jovi, there, blindfolded, and he gives her a cup of coffee to drink, she practically spits it out as she tastes it and says to Buddy, this is a crappy cup of coffee. In Buddy's case, the promise of a great cup of coffee, the world's best, it didn't deliver. It failed to live up to its promises. For Jovi, she probably never would have believed it in the beginning just by looking at the outside of the shabby cafe. She probably would have never set foot inside. And either way, we, like Buddy and Jovi, often find ourselves disappointed when people are not faithful to follow through or deliver on their promises. And this often makes us cynical, not believing any promise or that any person will actually deliver or follow through. And I think at Christmas time, this is felt most palpably. The weight of promises made and the anticipation if they're going to be followed through on. The weight of promises unfulfilled, both now and in the past. And the weight of expectations that hang on all these promises. And our text today, it looks at a promise. And it's a promise made long ago in the story of God's people, the story that we find ourselves in in this Advent series. And specifically, we're looking at a promise made to one girl named Mary. And our story is one where the promise maker, God himself, he follows through on his promise. And not just to Mary, but through her for all people. The big idea we're going to explore today is this. Because God fulfills his promises, we can rejoice and magnify the Lord and live in the joy of God's faithfulness. Now, first, we should recap a little bit of what's happened in our story. Earlier, Mary, she received some news that the impossible is going to happen to her. As a virgin, she's going to become pregnant without intercourse. Kind of hard. She's going to be carrying the one that's called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Talk about some heavy news. And to all this, Mary says, let it be. That's pretty amazing. That's an astonishing response. She then rushes to her cousin Elizabeth's house, who herself has received some impossible news. She's an older woman, past childbearing years, and she's, she's heard that she's going to be having a son as well. And when Mary see, oh, sorry, when Elizabeth sees Mary, 
uh, her own baby leaps inside of her with joy, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And she pours out this prophetic blessing on Mary, and she declares who her child is going to be, and that Mary is blessed. And Elizabeth, she blesses Mary, not only for believing that God is able to do it, but that he will be faithful to do it. And this leads Mary into her song of praise, our text for today, the Magnificat. It's a song of praise to God for his faithfulness to his promises. Let's read verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior. Right away, Mary states the purpose for her singing. She sings to rejoice and to magnify the Lord. This is a song of praise. It's a song filled with joy, a joy in reflecting upon God's faithfulness. Now, we need to recall some things about Mary in order to feel the force of the fact that she's praising God in that moment. She's between ages 12 and 16. She's engaged, but not yet married to a man named Joseph. And as we kind of mentioned already, she earlier in the story, she was visited by an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel, he tells her that she's found favor with God and that she's going to be overshadowed with the Holy Spirit, miraculously conceive a child, and he's going to be the son of God. And to this impossibility for any human, Mary hears and she receives this as good news. And she says, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let this happen to me. What's impossible for humankind is possible for God. And Mary has faith that it can happen. And her words, they're astonishing for a variety of reasons. But her saying yes to God instantly puts her in the midst of trial. As a woman in the first century Israel, being um, pregnant out of wedlock uh, and, be, and not being a virgin out of wedlock will put her in danger of being stoned to death. And this is quite different from today, where being a virgin in our culture is by and large embarrassing, and being pregnant out of wedlock isn't really that big of a deal. The opposite was true in the time of Mary, and much more serious. Not being a virgin outside of marriage was a horror and a disgrace. And her saying yes to God, letting this happen to her, even though it's according to his divine purpose and plan, would result in her shame and isolation, hers and her entire family's. Mary was functionally a social outcast. And this same Mary, whose society would now cast aside and loathe and try to kill on farce, false charges, oof, that was a close one too, <laughs> uh, false charges of infidelity, this same Mary is shown compassion by God through her visit to her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, when she sees Mary, she doesn't uh, speak disgrace or shame over Mary and what's happened. She proclaims the joy and honor that Mary has in carrying the Messiah. And Elizabeth, she twice blesses Mary, first for her physical motherhood of carrying the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, and second for her faith in believing what God spoke and that it would happen. And this blessing, it casts aside Mary's difficult station in society by the joy of God's compassion shown through her cousin. Now, proper etiquette would have that these words of blessing that Elizabeth has said to Mary be returned to her by Mary by her blessing Elizabeth. And instead, 
Mary is so overcome that she erupts in joyful praise of God's faithfulness to her. This same Mary is shown compassion. Um, pardon me. Mary rejoices. And it might be good to pause and think about what rejoicing is. And clearly it comes from the word joy. And we often compare joy to happiness. But it's helpful to consider the angle of gratitude when thinking about Mary and her situation. Popular author Brene Brown, she has a chapter in one of her books on this, on joy and gratitude. Joy is described as taking pleasure and satisfaction in something and rejoicing or expressing an intense feeling of satisfaction. Brene explains that happiness is attached to external situations and events. It seems to ebb and flow as those circumstances come and go. Joy seems to constantly be tethered to our heart by spirit and gratitude. Joy is tethered to our hearts by spirit and gratitude. Now, clearly, Mary's situation, it wouldn't have caused a lot of happiness and joy uh, itself. In fact, she'd probably be, be experiencing a lot of fear. Fear that all she has or is would be taken away, killed, shame, um, isolated from society. But instead, her focus is on something outside of herself. It's on God. And she recalls and she reflects God's amazing faithfulness and is grateful. And as she does this, she re-enters joy and she rejoices. And we see that she rejoices for two reasons. And the first reason is about God's choosing Mary. And that's in verse 48. God has been gracious to look upon his lowly servant. And those words, his looking upon, that refers to God's loving care in selecting Mary to carry the child. Selecting someone uh, for an important task is a serious decision. And for centuries, people have been chosen for important tasks on the basis of pretty strict criteria. And that's often for good reason. I mean, everybody wants a good hairdresser who's trained and skilled so you don't end up with a bad haircut. We've all been there and it's bad. But we see careful selection in many areas of life. Musicians are selected and appointed because of their talents and their musical dexterity. Teachers are chosen because of accumulated wisdom and scholarly ability. People are chosen for important jobs, um, usually because they have skill or status. And that's not just in the past or out there. That's here in Vancouver. That's among us. That's in um, all sorts of ways. Building a house? No, no. This is Vancouver, and I'm a millennial. But ugh, that joke fell flat in the first service, too. That's fine. <laughs> but say I lived in Grand Prairie, Alberta, and I'm building a house there, and I can afford it. You want an architect who has professional qualifications, who will build something sturdy and sure. We all want a, a doctor who's skilled at surgeries for our loved ones. In our selection, it usually demands evidence and proof. Degrees, credentials, work experience. And more than we think or would like to admit, we're discriminating in the persons we appoint for things. And often, our selection is based on faulty criteria. Outward appearances and social status often play an important role in our selection. I bet a lot of examples come to mind right now. And if we're so discriminating in the persons that we appoint for things, how much more might we expect God to be? Yet, as Mary now reminds us, it seems that God's way of choosing is less discriminating than our own. 
From the outside and from a human perspective, Mary is a nobody. She's no one significant. She has no status, no credentials, uh, no qualifications. But God, he delights in the reversal of the world's ideas of importance. And he takes an insignificant servant girl to become the most significant mother. God's choosing of the lowly, that's nothing new. Rather, Mary's words, they ring throughout the whole Old Testament of God's faithfulness to the insignificant, the lowly, those of no significant status, the widow, the orphan. And in fact, Mary's words of praise, they echo a woman named Hannah's. In 1 Samuel, we learn about Hannah and her husband Elkanah. They're a faithful couple to the Lord. They've served him their whole lives. Hannah, though, she was childless, and she was desperate for a child. And she prays to the Lord, and she says in 1 Samuel 1.11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah's words of the affliction of your servant They're meant to express and invoke the compassion of God. Hannah wants God to remember her, to look upon her lowly state of childlessness, and to grant her, a servant of the Lord, a child who will serve the Lord. And later in that chapter, the Lord hears Hannah's prayers, and shortly after, she and her husband Elkanah, they conceive. And her her son would be dedicated to the Lord and would become the great prophet Samuel. God was faithful to hear and answer her prayers. And this prompts Hannah to rejoice in God's faithfulness to her. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah sings out a song of praise to the Lord. And she says, My heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God's faithfulness to Hannah causes her to rejoice in God her Savior. And I'm sure many of you can see the similarities already between Hannah and Mary's songs of praise. And I encourage you to read all of Hannah's song of praise and see how similar they are. But while Mary's song is similar to Hannah's, God's action towards Mary, this giving of this miraculous conception to her, it's not occasioned by Mary praying and asking for it. Mary's not in the same lowly state of being without a child as Hannah. Instead, God bursts onto the scene. He initiates this act to Mary in order to be faithful to his promise of a Messiah. And in the heart of Mary, God saw someone who would respond in faith and love. Her lowly status, it's significant because it will be shared with her son. Jesus will be born into her status and place in life. God is uninterested in both worldly status or even in the status of those who've made a name for themselves in the religious hierarchy. He picked Mary. He picked an ordinary, humble, plain woman. No wonder she sang in amazement and gratitude. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. God hasn't overlooked her. He's been faithful to her, even her, and this fills her with joy. God has chosen her and desires her, and he's entrusted a place in his story to her. The song continues saying, From now on, 
all generations will call me blessed. Mary is starting to see the magnitude of what is happening to her. Generations to come shall see her fortune in receiving this special role. She's an example of one graced by God, an example of faith in saying yes to what seems impossible because God, her Savior, has initiated this act with her. And Elizabeth, she already recognized this in verse 42 when she says, Blessed are you among women. And verse 45, Blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. Recalling again Hannah's song that we visited, who prays that God will remember her, asks him to remember her. Mary sings that she will be forever remembered. Mary sees that something has happened to her that more than echoes Hannah's prayer and joy and song. And the expression, from now on, from now on, that's an important one. A significant change has taken place in God's plan so that from now on, things will be different. Once Mary is touched by this gracious act of God, things are different. They will never be the same. The end of verse 48 is a decisive turning point in history that looks to the future blessing of all generations for all people, for you and for me. They will never be the same because of what God has done for and through Mary and her miraculous conception. And Mary restates this in verse 49a. She calls God selecting her for the miraculous conception a great thing done by the mighty one. A great thing done by the mighty one. She's recognizing the extreme generosity of God. And in fact, Mary, she's classifying what God has done by using the same language and imagery, those words, a great act done by the mighty one. That's the language used to describe the defining acts of God for the nation of Israel. And what would come to mind probably would be the Exodus, God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the Psalms would come to mind, and the laws in Deuteronomy. Mary clearly knew her scriptures. She knew her Jewish tradition. You see this in Psalm 71, verse 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? And we see it in Deuteronomy 10, verses 21 to 22. He is your praise. He is your God. He who has done these great and terrifying things for you that you've seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 person, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Both these passages, they speak of the greatness of God's acts, his generosity towards his people. Mary's song, by using this language, by bringing to mind all this imagery, she's considering God's act of favor upon her as on par, a continuation of God's faithful acts in the past. And while this mighty act is for Mary, its implications are for all. But the comparison, it couldn't be more hilarious in a way. The birth of a tiny baby is the same as the Exodus, as God parting the Red Sea for Israel to leave slavery in Egypt. It's crucial to see the generosity in this mighty act. And Mary, she's aware of this, seeing his generosity not only in the way that God chooses, he chose her, but in the way in which 
his gifts and blessings are poured out. God's generosity is seen in his faithful fulfillment of giving the Messiah, the promised one, to his people through what he's done through Mary. His generosity is shown to Mary by selecting her specifically, giving her this honor. And after praising God for what he's done for her, Mary continues her joyful praise by describing God's faithfulness even more. There's more for her to tell. You can never plumb the depths of God's faithfulness, and it's an endless well. Mary, she's able to draw from this well and rejoice in her God, not by focusing on herself and her circumstances at that time, but on him and all the promises that he's been faithful to. So we continue in our passage reading in verses 49b to 53. Holy is his name. From generation to generation, he is merciful to those who fear him. He has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has lifted up those of lowly position. He's filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. Mary's declaration of the holiness of God's name and his mercy to those who fear him, that's picked up in another Old Testament passage in Psalm 111, verse 9, when it says, He sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. She sings of what's, what God has already done. And this linking of what God has done for Mary with the proclamations of who he is, it's meant, as we've been saying, to bring to mind the holiness, the mercy, the power of God that's been shown to all the generations past. These are the stories that Israel told to every generation in order to remember and to rejoice. And once again, the greatest act of God, the Exodus, it would come to mind. And we read of that in Exodus 6.1 when God is speaking to Moses and he's making promises about the coming deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And God says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And throughout the next verses following this, the constant refrain and promise of God says, I will, I will do this, I will deliver, I will bring you out, I will make you my own. And he does. Mary's joy of what God has done for her is spilling into this praise of what God has done for those who fear him. And yet, these verses, 51 to 53, they also anticipate what he's going to do in the future. So Mary, she's praised what God has done for her. She's looked back at what God has done in past generations and now she's looking forward to what God will do. He will scatter the proud. He'll bring down the mighty. He'll exalt the humble. He'll fill the hungry. He'll send the rich away empty. These verses, in these verses, there's a great re reversal that's so common to Luke's gospel. In Luke 6, verses 20 to 26, we have the Beatitudes that's followed by the woes that Jesus spoke to his group of disciples. And they say, blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are the hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. But woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you will be hungry. 
Woe to you who laugh, for you will weep. What Luke dramatizes both in the Beatitudes and the Magnificat is a theme of reversal where the rich and the powerful, they're frustrated, and the poor and the lowly, they become truly wealthy and exalted. With God, the lowly and the poor and the hungry, the widow and the orphan and the needy, they cannot lose face by admitting what they're really like or that they need God because God already knows. And it's no different for us. All of our weaknesses, all of our lowly positions, they're already understood. Our pains and our deep hurts, they're already known to him. Our vulnerability is safe in God's hands, for with him we have nothing to prove and everything to gain. And Mary, she's already recognized this in verse 48. She says that God has looked upon her lowly estate, her humble estate. She recognizes the great favor that she has in carrying the Messiah. Through God initiating this act to Mary, he has lifted her up from the lowly position. She is the lowly, the poor, the hungry. And he has now exalted her and demonstrates this great reversal in giving her this honor. Mary's song celebrates her own blessedness of God's lifting her up, and she anticipates his doing so again. As Luke recounts the Magnificat of Mary, he shows how God has made her the spokeswoman of this reversal. And this reversal, it's not just something that Mary says, but it's constant throughout Jesus' ministry. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is seeking the lost and the lowly, and he's welcoming those who believe and have faith into his family. So often, those who trust in themselves, the rich, the Pharisees, the proud, those in power, they're sent away because they don't recognize that Jesus is the ultimate act of generosity and power of God. He is the promised Messiah, come to bring salvation to his people. And the final lines of the song seem to culminate and capture this in verses 54 to 55. And it says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. These last lines, they could be paraphrased as, he spoke to us just as he said he would. And this, this is the basis Mary gives of God's vindication for those who fear him. God has kept his faith with the people of the promise, with the descendants of Abraham. He has been consistently faithful, however much others have been faithless. And we only need to read the story of Israel to see how faithless they have been, and they can be. Yet God has honored uh, the covenant that he spoke to Abraham. In the covenantal history, the initiative is always taken by God. It's not dependent upon the people and their faithfulness, but God upholds it on his own and his faithfulness. God called Abraham. He initiated. He blessed Sarah with a child. He initiated. He wrestled with Jacob. He appointed Moses. He selected David. His constant initiative to upkeep the covenant is because of his faithfulness. His holiness shown through mercy in saving a lowly people of insignificant beginnings. And we see this within the infancy narrative of Luke itself. When we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son John, God is faithful to his promises. And of course to Mary, he's faithful to her and to his covenantal promise of sending the promised Messiah. 
And all of this is recalled and it's anticipated at the end of Mary's song. The whole mercy of God is summarized, the promises of God and how he's remembered them. God is a faithful God. He's a compassionate God. And he doesn't treat people the way that they deserve, but he deals with them in forgiveness. And the reality of God's mercy, God's coming as Emmanuel, it moves Mary to an outburst of praise. And now Mary herself will carry the promised Messiah, Christ, the fulfillment of the promise to Israel for a Savior. And this, this is our ultimate source of joy. As God has been faithful in such extraordinary ways to keep his word to Mary, who we still remember in her account as blessed, and as God was faithful in, to Israel in sending the Messiah, as God is faithful in generosity to lift up the lowly and to bring down the rich, to choose the ordinary, to bring forth the fullness of his promise, God is still faithful to his church today. And one of our sources of joy is God's faithfulness. We remember how God has been faithful, and this helps us to joyfully anticipate how he will be faithful to his promises yet fulfilled. What our story is telling us and what Advent teaches us year after year is to wait for what is beyond the obvious. We live in a world full of broken promises and unfaithfulness, and it damages us. It makes us guarded and cynical, skeptical, nervous about trusting people. And this issue of unfaithfulness is not just out there in the world, it's in here too, and it's in us too. We struggle to be faithful to God, to each other and to ourselves. But behind and amidst and beyond all of this is God, who's entirely faithful to his faithless people. If we let it, Advent will train us to see what is beyond the apparent. God is always faithful, even if we can't see it in the moment. And sometimes that's very difficult to see. And you might be hurting and waiting and longing to see uh, God show his faithfulness. And if that anticipation is too much, if that's too difficult in this moment, I invite you to look backward instead of forward, to look back at the story of Israel, at how God has been faithful, to look at the story of Mary, to look at the baby in the manger, the story fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if you've been part of St. Peter's for a while, this is what our sermon series in Hebrews is all about. It's looking backwards and looking forwards on the story of God's people, all the faithful witnesses that have gone before us, witnesses like Mary, and remembering how God has been faithful in all of his promises and how they're all fulfilled in Jesus. Like Mary, rejoice in how faithful God has been. And maybe this can help you begin to trust that he will be faithful. He will fulfill his promises. He will set things right, even if it doesn't look like what we would like for ourselves. Finally, this passage invites us to look for the unexpected. God chose Mary. No one thought that she would be the one chosen. The Messiah came as a baby in a manger. It was unexpected. It was a surprise. God reconciles the world to himself through a cross, a criminal's death. The death of Jesus brings unexpected life, the greatest reversal indeed. God shows his faithfulness in unexpected ways. 
May we have the eyes to see his faithfulness in the present. God fulfills his promises. He is faithful in the most extraordinary and unexpected of ways. And in all of this, we can rejoice. We can truly find joy. We can rejoice and magnify the Lord, for he has done great things, and he is doing great things. May Advent usher us to reorient our lives around the joyful expectancy of our returning King.